Father, we understand how good you were to Moses and the nation of Israel, delivering them from their taskmasters, the slave drivers, the ones who were not kind, who were brutal, who were ruthless. And we know that you will redeem us from this world, from the power of the enemy and the ways that he reigns over, the ways of the world and also the ways of the flesh. We thank you for your mercy and your kindness. And we thank you that you have foreshadowed this event through the book of Exodus, through the Old Testament. And we ask that you would bring to us understanding that we can fully grasp how long you have been speaking, how long you have been crying out a voice in the wilderness that we would be receptive to your word and to your ways. And we ask this morning that you would accomplish this by your Holy Spirit. Teach us and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see that God has chosen Moses. Moses, I believe, had become content, complacent, satisfied, and unworried. If you recall, he left Egypt. He married Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro. And he had a son, and he was a sheep herder. We know that from Acts, I think it's 7.22, that Moses was an educated man. He was knowledgeable. He was able to speak well, which was very important in the hierarchy of Egypt of that day. In the royal courts, you had to be able to communicate and speak well. And he did that. But after 40 years in the wilderness, before the wilderness with the Jews, he spent it in Midian. Now, Midian is on the other side of the Red Sea. It's in the area that we know as Saudi Arabia over there. And that's where he spent his time with Jethro. Now, Jethro was a Midianite, and he came from the union, as I said last week, of Keturah and Abraham. And he had several other sons uh, with Keturah. And when Midian crossed over and went over to the area of Saudi Arabia, Jethro would have come from that lineage. And for a time, there was a good relationship between the Jews and the Midianites. Later, it deteriorated and God judged them and there were battles against the Israelites. And of course, the Israelites were victorious. So for 40 years previously, he was zealous for his people, the Jews, and went so far as to murder an Egyptian who was beating a fellow Jew. Remember, he decided to be identified with the people of his heritage, the Jews, rather than to enjoy pleasure or the pleasures of sin for a season under the direction of Pharaoh in the country of Egypt. Now, we will find out that Moses gives five excuses why he should not do the will of God. And we know that when God chooses somebody, oftentimes they are reluctant. They don't want to do it. They decide they're recalcitrant, that they don't want to be involved in what God's plan is. They would rather be involved in what their own plan is. Uh, We make plans, we buy and we sell, we go to school, we have businesses, we work for other businesses, we just make our plans the way that they are and we think, well, this is how you do it, rather than turning towards God and say, God, what is it that you would like? What is it that you want? And Moses was not interested in that. Moses was focused on himself and this was his greatest error. 
here in chapter 3. Now we're going to look at the curiosity of Moses, the concern of God, and the commission which was given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of, excuse me, in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. So here's Moses in the middle of the desert. He sees this bush just blazing. And he goes, what is that? And so by curiosity, he comes over. Now you may have come to church like that. What is that place? What do they do in there? Have you ever wondered what other churches do? You know, what do they do? How do they conduct their service? And, you know, maybe I'll go there and just sit in there and see, you know, are they kind of wild? Are they real reserved? Do I wear a tie? Do I not wear a tie? How's the worship? Is it hymns? Is it contemporary? What is going on exactly? And we, when I talk to somebody about their church, I like to know what's going on inside their church. Well, Moses was curious. And that's how God got a hold of him. If you go into a church, sometimes you're curious. And that's how God will get a hold of you. Now, you have this Mount Horeb. Now, I'd like you to turn over to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. If you go over to the Middle East, specifically to the Sinai Peninsula, they will tell you that Mount Sinai is in the Sinai Peninsula, down at the tip where it comes to a V. They believe, over in the Middle East, that that is where God met with Moses. Horeb is synonymous with Mount Sinai. And I don't believe that that is the case And I don't believe that according to Scripture. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 25, we see some foreshadowing and allegories being resolved here. It says, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai, and where does it say it is? In Arabia, and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. And so when Moses went to Midian, which is in Saudi Arabia... And he went back over there to Mount Sinai. It is in Arabia. It is not in the Sinai Peninsula. And there are some documentaries about this. One of them is Robert Cornuke or Kanuki. Uh, he has evidence that is credible and compelling in his video, The Search for the Real Mount Sinai. It's a DVD by that gentleman. And if you've ever seen it, it's all the evidence is there. I've seen uh, some documentaries on this. If you go over to this area, you will notice that the top of the mountains in this area are black. They have been scorched. They have been burnt. And anybody who's an archaeologist that has gone over there will verify that. If you look at it on Google Maps, you can actually see the blackness of the mountain peaks. Now, why would that be the case? God came down like fire was on top of these mountains, and it was fire. And apparently it just burnt, scorched the tops of these mountains. There's this area called the Altar of Moses that is there. There's this rock called the Rock of Mirabah where Moses struck the rock. He was only supposed to speak to the rock, and there's evidence of water flowing from. It's like this mountaintop or this hilltop, and they know that there's water that flowed from this hilltop, and you see this huge rock. It's taller than this uh, ceiling in here, and it's split in two. You also see this one area where all of these calves 
the hieroglyphs on these big rocks in the center of this large area that could accommodate at least 3 million people. If you go down to the area of Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula, where they believe it to be, there is not enough room for 1 to 3 million people to encamp there. But in this campsite, there is. And then there are 12 pillars that are set up at the base of this mountain, which, if you read the scriptures, that's what they did. They put these 12 pillars. We know that there was a calf that was being sacrificed there. There was a Moses of altar, or Moses had an altar that was there. All of these signs are there, and the Saudi Arabian government has fenced it off. They don't want anybody going in there. Imagine if they could establish that that was, in fact, the place where the Jews went. Imagine if they did some archaeological digs and they found something there like, oh, it's true that the Israelites actually went over there. You think Saudi Arabia is going to let that out? There's no way. They are Muslim. They're not going to let that happen. Even though they came from Abraham themselves, they don't want anything to do with Moses or the Jews. And from Saudi Arabia is where we had some of the terrorists from 9-11. That's where they were birthed. So there's no way to get in there legally and verify that this is, in fact, the landing point of the Jews at the base of Mount Sinai, the one in Saudi Arabia. Now, there was a concern that God had in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, and he's talking about the bush, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. I'm sure he is quite shocked at this point. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this, or at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, up to this point, Moses had not had, really, an encounter with God. God didn't show up to him and talk to him. It was just like instant. It's He's there in the flesh, so to speak. We don't know if it was an image that was inside the bush or if it was actually God inside the bush, how big the bush was, how small it was. We don't know exactly what was going on, but he hid his face because he didn't want to look at God. Now, is he calling the fire God? I I don't think so. I think that he saw him because Moses talked to God as a man talks face to face. But this thing was burning, but it was not being consumed. Now, this is an unexpected source of revelation or communication god has spoken in different ways in the past now for instance god speaks through dreams he can do that he can speak through visions primarily god speaks through his word and if you get some other way where god is speaking to you you want to make sure it's verified in the word Don't say, like some of the crazies that are out there, God told me to kill some people. You are absolutely nuts, and you need to be locked up somewhere. God would never say that. That doesn't comport with his word. It's not something that God would command us to do. So you want to make sure if God is speaking to you in some way, you verify it. Just last night, you know, Patty was reading something. She goes, maybe this applies to you. Maybe God is speaking here. There's some stuff we're talking about, and I'm going, well, you know, I'll just tuck that one away. And so God can speak in various ways. Like, for instance, when we began the church here, we weren't really quite sure, how do you know God's telling you to do that? Do you just step out and maybe you fail, maybe you don't? Well, to some degree, yes, you do that. But if you don't know if God is telling you to do something, how better to know than just do it, right? Isn't that a little scary? It's frightening. It's like you're going to change your whole life. And we just started a church. What about a missionary? I think God is calling me like the pixelies to Croatia. Oh, really? 
you're going to pick up your little kids, you're going to sell all your stuff, you're going to put your house on the market, and you're just going to move. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. That is, that can be frightening to do something like that. And if God calls you to do something, it can be verified through those who are around you. For instance, when we started the church and we had a home fellowship, people just started coming up to Patty or to me and saying, you know, there really needs to be a church in Lakeside. And we're just, we're just tucking this away like, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And then there's some more to the story, but there's a lot of times where people would just verify there needs to be a church in Lakeside. And we were praying for the pastor, whoever he'd be, and we'd come alongside of him. And we just knew that there was going to be. We just didn't know who was going to do it. And so God can speak through the people, but make sure, and we had to make sure that that would comport, that would come alongside, that would agree with what scripture says, that go out and make disciples. Okay, that in line with scripture and he gave other scriptures in order to verify it but principally god speaks through his word uh, but be open to how god can communicate but don't don't put out fleeces that you know can be answered naturally like for instance okay lord i'm going to stand in this corner here and if six white cars go by in the next 15 minutes then it's a view that is just ridiculous. White is the most common car in America, right? And so what if, what if you said, well, if six copper cars go by, you know, what are you doing? Trying to test the Lord or something in that? Just ask him plainly, God, reveal it to me. Am I supposed to do this or that or go here or go there or be involved with this or, or forsake that thing? Just tell me. Do you think God is able to speak clearly? It's just we who cannot hear clearly all the time. You know, it's like our hearing goes bad physically. Well, our hearing could be bad spiritually where we're going, what? Did I, did I hear you right? And God always, I think for the most part, except with Moses here, he doesn't answer all the way. He gives you just enough to give you this desire, but you're not quite sure. And then he expects you to step out in faith, right? He expects you to operate based on foreknowledge. A guy who does skydiving does this. He jumps out of the plane based on what? Foreknowledge. This has worked before, so I'm going to do this again. And he takes his life into his own hands and just jumps out of the plane and says, Hurrah! You know that? And that's how you're supposed to walk with the Lord. You know what he's done before. You just step out. And I believe in God's economy, we really can't fail. We can learn different ways, but we really can't fail. Now, in the Old Testament as well, in First Kings chapter 19... In verse 9, Elijah was there, and he thought he was the only one left, and there were 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to the Baals nor kissed him. And God came back. He said, I'm going to have you stand on this mountain. And then there was a great wind that broke rocks, and then there was an earthquake that uh, broke up the ground, and then there was fire that came down, and Elijah understood that God wasn't in any one of those. But then he heard this still, small voice. And at that point, he covered his face and he knew it was God because God was speaking to him. And so God can speak in various ways, but in these last days, according to the book of Hebrews, he has spoken through his word. And not only this, finding finding out the will of God, if you delight yourself in the Lord, according to Psalm 37, verse 4, he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean he will give you what you long for. He will actually put the desires that you will have inside of your heart. 
and they will be God's desires. Now let's go on. Verse 7. Here's the concern of God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land. It is a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So he gives this commission, a commission to Moses. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So God gives himself a name, a name for all of us. In the Hebrew, it's Haya Asher Haya. I am that I am, or I am who I am. In the Greek, it's Ego Ime. When Jesus was talking about, I am the gate to the sheepfold, I am, he would say, ego ime. That is the Greek word for I am that corresponds to the Hebrew word, haya asher haya, I am that I am. When Jesus showed up, he declared that he was the I am of the burning bush. He made seven I am statements. Now, I'm going to want you to take your Bible. I want you to open up your Bible to the book of John. I'm going to show you these where Jesus actually declared himself to be God in human form. And this is a linchpin of the Christian faith. If Jesus is not God, our faith is in vain. And Jesus declared it more than seven times to the people. And we'll see how they treated him after he did so. The first one is in John chapter 6, verse 35. And here... Jesus calls himself the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And this is the word, ego, ime. And this is the word that corresponds to the Old Testament, haya, asher, haya. And so he's, he's telling them, I am the God of the burning bush that is the bread of life. And they understand this. Then Jesus spoke to them, turn to over, uh, or turn over to John chapter 8 and verse 12. Here he says, Ego ime, the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. Again, he makes this definitive statement that he is God. I once had somebody ask me or tell me, Jesus never said he was God. And I said, oh, contraire, you may not understand what was talked about at the time Jesus was saying it, but those Jews understood perfectly what he was trying to communicate to them, that he was, in fact, God in human form. Turn over to John chapter 10, verse 9. He says here, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out or go in and out and find pasture. 
So, so far, he has called himself the bread of light. He has called himself the light of the world, or bread of life. He has called himself the door, the door to the sheepfold, also in verse 11. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He is using I am, the I am that is referenced in Exodus chapter 3. Turn over to John chapter 11, verse 25. This is where Lazarus had died, and he's talking to Mary and Martha here. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. So I am the resurrection. Two more to go. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is very narrow, very exclusive. This is a declarative statement where he lets everybody know, you cannot get to heaven by any other religion, by any other means, by any other prophet, by any other God. This is it. This is the only way to heaven. The final one is John chapter 15, verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So it is established seven different times. Jesus says, I am the God of the burning bush. Now, in case you doubt this, turn back to John chapter 8, verse 52. And this will really reveal that the Jews understood what he was trying to say. I got John 8, 52, and after that we're going to go to John chapter 10. In John 8, 52, here's a little story. And this the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets, because he was talking about Jesus had seen his day. Yet you say, if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. What do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. He's not trying to make friends here. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, and there it is, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So before Abraham was born, he goes, I am the God of the burning bush. And the Jews understood this, and they were just incensed. Now, I don't know if you've, seen the people in the Middle East, but they are a little emotional, a little passionate when they think that something is going wrong. They start, their arms start flying, hair starts pulling out, clothes start being ripped, yelling takes place, and they would have immediately, as a mob, gone and just tried to get rocks, and they would have killed him for sure. But it says, Jesus walked through the midst. Now, I don't know how this happened. If you have a throng of people, a crowd a group of individuals who want to kill you, how do you just walk through the midst? I have a tendency to believe, and this is just my own opinion, that he was still visible but dematerialized. Now, what you say, what, what do you mean by that? You know, like Scotty beam me up. All the molecules just kind of allowed the people to 
grab them, but they couldn't grab them. They saw them, but whoo, but kind of weird, you know, or maybe he just parted the people like Moses parted the Red Sea and they, and maybe he had a force field around him. They'd throw the rocks and they'd just go tink and they'd fall out. I don't know how it happened, but it was a miracle of some kind. I would have liked to have seen this. This would have been fantastic. And at that point, if they would have denied that he was a Messiah, are you kidding me? What, what more proof do you need? He calls himself I am and then he walks through the midst of you and doesn't even get a scratch on him. What is going on here? Well, turn over to John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, again, they just wanted to kill him. It says again, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. And they didn't deny this. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these. In other words, we know that you have done these miracles, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So was Jesus claiming to be God, the God of the burning bush, the great I am? Yes, that's what he was telling the people, and they could not stand for it. But that's who God reveals himself as in the Old Testament. I am that I am, or I am who I am. Now, with Moses as well, if we digress a little bit here, Moses has some complaints. God is calling him, and he's not so keen on the idea. We just saw the I am statement of God. Well, Moses comes up with his own I am statements. At least that's how we can codify them to remember them. The first, I'm going to give you all five of them first, and then we're going to go through them. The first one is I am insignificant. Second one is, I am ignorant. Third one is, I am anxious. The fourth one, I am unskilled. And fifthly, I am reluctant. And so we know, again, from Acts chapter 7, verse 22, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. The guy was a man's man. Even his parents thought he was a special child. Even the Egyptians thought he was special, specifically Pharaoh's daughter. In verse 11, it says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He's saying, I am insignificant. Now, why would he be saying that? Well, first of all, turn over to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 46, something is revealed about Moses and his occupation. Now, he came out of Egypt, and he was raised in Egypt, and he was strong in speech and in action, but he had taken up a particular vocation that was detestable. In Genesis chapter 46, verse 31, it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were living in the land of Canaan had come to me. The men are shepherds, they tend livestock, and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable. 
to the Egyptians. So here's Moses. He's been a shepherd for 40 years. He probably speaks sheep. He looks like a sheep, probably. He's probably burly all the way around. He would take his rod and his staff, and he would shear the sheep. He would check the sheep for ticks. This was a detestable practice for the Egyptian. And here's a shepherd who's supposed to show up eventually with the elders of Israel and go before Pharaoh, who they don't even want to talk to or look at because he's a shepherd. Even if he is this Moses character, because of what he does and who he is, he is a shepherd and he's ten sheep. They're not even going to want to talk to him. And so Moses says, they're not going to want to talk to me. I am totally insignificant. And we know that everybody who was against him had previously died. So he's going to show up to those who are in power almost as a stranger, although they probably would have had some insight as to who he was. And they may have been a little curious, but he was detestable. Now, there are other people that thought that they were insignificant. And they were both named Saul. If you remember King Saul, when he was called in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 18, it says, Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, and by the way, Saul was the first king of the nation of Israel. They rejected God as their king and guide, and they wanted a man to sit on the throne. And so God chose Saul, and he was the one that would be the first king. goes on to say, would you please tell me where the seer's house is? And this is Saul talking to Samuel. Samuel says, I am the senior, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you've lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and all your father's family? Saul answered, but I... Or am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? He goes, I'm completely inadequate here. I'm of the smallest tribe of the smallest clan. And you're telling me that the desire of Israel has come to me? He ended up being the first king of Israel. Now he was disobedient and God judged him for that. But he was still the first king of Israel. And remember Saul, who later became Paul, the apostle? What was he guilty of? Killing Christians. He would take letters from the chief priests and have these Christians stoned. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. In other words, I am completely unworthy to be doing this. I am completely ill-equipped. Now, do you think you're equipped if God wants to do something with you? Do you think you have the stuff? Are you made of the right stuff? Or are you not? Well, one of the conditions of having the right stuff is being humble. And Moses was certainly a humble man, but he underestimated God's power. So what should our response to God be in this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans chapter 8, verse 31. He registers his second complaint. I am ignorant. In other words, I possess no knowledge. Now, does Moses possess knowledge? Yes, he does. He was smart. He could speak well, and he could carry out great action, as we just read in Acts chapter 7, verse 22. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? In other words, he had not had an encounter with God. He he really didn't know who he was. He goes, I don't even know your name. I'm completely ignorant. How am I supposed to represent you? You have told me nothing about you. 
And so he tells him his name. He makes provision. He goes, okay, I'm going to tell you what's going to go on here. This is my name, and this is what you're to tell them. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and eventually the God of Joseph as well. He says, this is my name. This is who you are to go to, the elders, and then to the king of Egypt, and this is what you are to say and do, and this will be the outcome. So God lays it out for him. He tells him what's going to happen in the future, and he just needs to carry it out. Verse 15 says, God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation, and specifically the generation of the Jews. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, God shows up to you and says, I'm going to do this in you. I'm going to take you over here, and this is what you're going to say to the people. And when you tell them, they're going to respond, and they're going to rejoice. And you go, really? You're not even excited about it? If God says, I'm going to use you to be an evangelist in the end times right before the rapture, you're going to go out and you're going to save thousands. And you go, really? Honestly, I don't even really know who you are. I haven't even read through the Bible. Why would you do that with me? At this particular point, Moses should have got out his horn that are used today in uh, football games and baseball games. They blow that, they blow that thing. He had a shofar. You know, a shofar, you know what a shofar is. It's a big old horn that's twisted like that. And they blow the shofar. They do, they do this on feasts in Israel. And he, he should have just been rejoicing, just going, woohoo, all right, let's go. And he wasn't doing that at all. That's why he had become complacent he had become comfortable he didn't want to do anything this is our danger as well that we can become complacent apathetic you know let somebody else go and do it you know I they i got sheep and he goes on he goes on verse 18 here the elders of israel will listen to you then you and the elders are to go to the king of egypt and say to him the lord the god of the hebrews has met with us let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord of God. If God sat down and met with you, what would you do? Would you go tell everybody? You'd probably say, no, they're going to think I'm crazy. Well, but God ends up giving him some miracles to do to establish who he is. If God sends you, just go and be happy. It's all good. I mean, even if you have trials under the tutelage of God, it's much better than having trials outside of the tutelage of God. He knows you. He loves and cares for all of us so much. And he was doing this for Moses' benefit. And Moses was going, I'm not convinced. He goes on. He says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand that compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. So he's already won. God has established it. He goes, you're going to go there. They're going to listen to you. It's going to be tough, but you're going to win. It's all planned out. 
going on. Verse 21, and I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed to you towards this people so that when you leave, you'll not go empty handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold for clothing, which will put on, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. So God lays out this plan completely. All Moses had to do was show up. Now, before we start getting down a little bit on Moses and for his reluctance to remember, he was the pioneer that God was using and going to use to perform so many miracles and be an instrument of change for so many people. It never happened like this before. This was the first time that it had taken place, and he was called upon Unlike Abraham, Abraham was responsible for his family and eventually 70 people went down to Egypt. He's going to be responsible for millions, millions of people. And so I have a tendency not to get too far down on him, to put him down, just going, wow, this is a man. God took him anyhow. He kind of forced him into the position, as we will see. But it was a great thing that God did, but it was very anxiety much much anxiety would be produced in an individual that is asked to do this and that's number three moses says i am anxious at least in my words moses answered what if they do not believe me or listen to me or say the lord did not appear to you listen if you ever want to give a message if you want to come up here and give a message what do you think that's going to be like will they listen to me Will I have enough of the right things to say? Will it be okay? They might laugh at me or they might laugh with me or it might not be good. They may not like me. And here's Moses going, these elders, they may not like me at all. And Pharaoh, you know, he probably won't, he'll want to kill me. And so why, I'm kind of worried about this. Moses was a worrier. Why can't we just keep the status quo and not change? And I'm right at the top of the hour. I can't go on. There's too much. There's too much here. So the third one is I am anxious. We're going to go on to four and five next week, and we're going to see what happens to Moses. It's just, it's incredible. The Lord was mad at him by the time this all gets done, but I don't want to uh, give you too much ahead. Let Let me just pray. Father, we thank you for Moses and everything that he is going through, and may it be an inspiration to us that if we become apathetic or reluctant or recalcitrant or just unwilling or even disobedient, that, Lord, you would grab a hold of us, the great things that you have done through Moses, just fantastic. And we are here even today because he eventually got in the game. We pray, Lord, that we would not hold on long to these feelings of inadequacy or worry or feeling like we don't know enough. We know that you can provide everything that we need. In Jesus' name, please stand.